TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Welcome back. Our number two here on News Radio 930 WBEN for show of 2022. And hey, we're, uh, we're kicking off right where we left off in 2021 with Dave Leventhal, who was our final guest of 2021, and now he's joining the first show of 2022. Dave Leventhal, obviously, is the Deputy Washington Bureau Chief at Business Insider, also from the great Western New York region. Dave, good morning. Hey, a pleasure and an honor to uh, to be back with you on your first show. Now, Dave, obviously, important stuff going on here in Buffalo this afternoon. We'll get into that. Uh, but I would like to know from you, the, the kick off, the, kick off the, uh, the segment like this, um, 2022, obviously, a lot going on later in the year. What do you think, what do you, what do you perceive will be the big stories of the year 2022 in Washington, D.C.? Well, COVID is going to color everything, Joe. I don't think there's uh, any way, even if the pandemic begins to wane in relatively short fashion, as I think we all hope it will, uh, it's still going to to really touch on every aspect of policy. It's going to touch on every aspect of politics now that we're entering an election year. So no matter what is being discussed, whether it's legislation or campaigns or votes, This is going to be an issue that is front and center at the federal level. And I think communities all across the country, too, are experiencing this very acutely on the state and the local level, going all the way down to city halls and school boards as to how students should wear masks, how uh, things should stay open or close, uh, how vaccines should be distributed and whether there should be mandates or not. So I think you can see where this is all going, that, uh, that that it's not going away anytime soon. And starting with this week, the first full week of uh, 2022, we uh, had the um, president and vice president speak at the Capitol on the anniversary of the incidents on January 6th. Um, it was interesting to see uh, the vice president, uh, but she was there. So was President Joe Biden. Dave, I, I thought what happened later was a little, a little interesting. Uh, Dick Cheney made an appearance um, I believe, on the Senate floor um, on January 6th. What was his message and what was he doing in Washington, D.C.? Well, it, it was striking to see him. I mean, let's let's not forget uh, relatively recent history, okay? If you rewind the clock, not a dozen years, Dick Cheney was uh, effectively uh, persona non grata number one for Democrats. Uh, he, he was the enemy. He was the villain. He, he, was, he was something out of a you know, out of a Batman movie and, and, and not on the good side uh, for Democrats. Uh, so the notion of Democrats uh, sort of hailing Dick Cheney as, if not a hero, somebody who was more on their side than the Republican side is, is just 
absolutely incongruent with everything anyone would have known not too terribly long ago, even even a couple of years ago. But Dick Cheney was there to effectively, you know, stand uh, side by side with Liz Cheney, his daughter, a representative from the state of Wyoming, serving in Congress, uh, who is a Republican and who is stood in opposition to many of her Republican colleagues when it comes to the actions of Donald Trump uh, in the Trump administration when Donald Trump was president. So as a result, uh, you know, Dick Cheney, the, the symbolism of him being there was, uh, of course, very striking. And the fact that uh, he's uh, now kind of reemerged as a voice of opposition to the Republican Party as led by Donald Trump is notable. Is it going to do anything? Probably not. Uh, but at the same time, too, Democrats, uh, in this very, very strange, odd way, were able to kind of chalk that up as a, a little moral victory for themselves uh, on uh, the anniversary of the attacks on the U.S. Capitol. So that was uh, that the, the awkwardness of, because Dave, you know, uh, we all remember how uh, Dick Cheney was um, was treated. I mean, you mentioned Batman. Batman played Dick Cheney in a, in a movie a few years ago, um, but it, it was it was weird to see him there and him being embraced by Democrats. Remembering what was twelve years ago, that was a shared uh, feeling throughout Washington. Very much so. I mean, it, it was. Uh, I think Republicans and Democrats, if they can be unified on anything, they were kind of unified in, in their shock at the at the visual of this uh, happening right uh, at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, I, I'm only you know laughing here a little bit uh, just because of, of how you know absurd this would have seemed again not too long ago because Democrats were were just uh, you know viewed Dick Cheney right up there and, and sort of a. You know the the axis of villains, if you will, among Republicans, uh, and, and yet uh, you know how things change when, uh, of course, you have somebody like uh, Donald Trump to serve as the enemy for Democrats. So, yeah, very very striking. It it may just be a one off thing, and, and there's not much more to read into it. Uh, but but it'll be curious to see if Dick Cheney, who has very much laid low over the past uh, several years, along with George W. Bush, uh, the of course uh, his president, uh, he's relatively stayed quiet and, and under the radar for the most part. Uh, but yeah, the, this emergence was was definitely something that was unexpected and very striking. Now, a, a message that was um, repeated on January 6th was the need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, where is that right now in Congress, in Senate, and what's the likelihood of that seeing any action? Well, it, this is something that, uh, and, and I, I won't go too far down the, the history trail here, but this is really going to come down to what the Democrats are going to do or not do, for that matter, when it comes to the filibuster. In the filibuster, this is the thing in the Senate. It is a rule. It's not a law. It's not in the Constitution. This is a construct of the U.S. Senate that sometimes Democrats have used to their great advantage. Sometimes Republicans have used to their great advantage. But right now, Democrats are trying to decide whether they want to whittle away at the filibuster just a little bit to get rid of this rule that says that effectively you need 60 votes in the Senate to advance something such as this that, that isn't a, a financially tied or, or a, a, a motion that uh, has a, a strong financial nature to it. So if you want to go forward, as the Democrats do, with voting rights bills and uh, in sort of, quote-unquote, democracy-related bills, they're going to have to change the rules of the filibuster. Now, there is historical precedent to this, and, and very recent one, too. In 2013, Democrats changed the filibuster rules to allow certain types of judicial nominees to go forward with only a simple majority of 50 votes. 
not 60. And then the Republicans, a couple years later, they changed the filibuster rules so that Supreme Court nominees could go forward without 60 votes in just 50 votes. So the ball's back in Democrats' courts. They, of course, just have the, the barest of minimum majorities right now. It's a 50-50 Senate. The Democrats have uh, Kamala Harris as vice president who can cast tiebreaker votes. So they would all have to agree. They would all have to be on the same page. Somebody like Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, a Democrat, who, who has been sort of the intramural foil of Democrats uh, for, for on many, many issues, he would have to agree. And it's unclear as to whether the Democrats are even going to have the votes to go forward. Uh, they would need help from Republicans to change this, and it's unlikely that they're going to get uh, much help, if any help at all, from Republicans. And speaking of Joe Manchin, seems like every time we talk, Dave, we're talking about West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Uh, you guys are reporting uh, over at Business Insider that he got some calls trying to lobby him uh, in support of the Senate filibuster. Absolutely. Uh, He's getting calls from uh, just about every corner of Republicans, Democrats, and everyone else. I mean, there's Joe Biden, the president, and there's Joe Manchin, the mini president. And that's really has been the theme of 2021 and 2022, this current congressional session where Joe Manchin, because he is so idiosyncratic and out of step with Democratic orthodoxy and so willing to stand apart from his party, he has that ability to more or less uh, get what he wants uh, because, uh, you know, he's that 50th vote. And if the Democrats don't have him, they've got a whole lot of nothing. So, yes, he is being lobbied on this. He's also being lobbied on several other things, too, not the least of which is the attempted resurrection by Democrats of the Build Back Better plan, which is Joe Biden's uh, roughly $1.8 trillion social spending package that is really a cornerstone of his presidential agenda, which is more like the build back backburner plan right now, um, because voting rights have superseded it uh, at this point in terms of legislative priorities. So expect voting rights to be number one on the legislative agenda going into, uh, well, certainly throughout this month and going into February, uh, a potential vote is uh, being scheduled or might be scheduled around Martin Luther King Jr. Day on the voting rights bills. You can obviously see the symbolism uh, that that uh, is being cast as a result of that. And the Build Back Better plan may, you know, likely be kicked down the road to a later date uh, if it's uh, ever going to be brought back uh, for an actual vote at all. You know, we talked Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin. Where does Chris uh, Kirsten Sinema uh, stand with all this? Uh, she's also been um, kind of, you know, a voice in the middle of the um, the Democrats in Senate, where does she stand on the filibuster on the Voting Rights Act? Uh, has she been has she made any um, statements on this against uh, Joe Manchin or with Joe Manchin? Yeah, she, she's likely more more likely to go with uh, with, with the Democratic majority than uh, than not, uh, at least on this issue. When it comes to the Build Back Better plan, uh, she's for certain aspects of it and against certain aspects. So, for example, Joe Manchin, a few weeks back, uh, he sort of counter-offered uh, a, a plan of himself uh, to push forward Build Back Better, but uh, Kirsten Cinema was really kind of aghast at a potential tax hike uh, that would have been placed on very wealthy individuals and high earners. That was a bridge too far for her, even though it was working for Joe Manchin. So, you know, the math doesn't work that way, too, when uh, when she falls off, even if Joe Manchin is in. So 
Uh, they're they're not uh, they're kind of a, a dual threat for the the Democratic leadership uh, in in the Senate and in Congress writ large, but they don't necessarily always want the same things at the same time, which makes uh, the calculus, so to speak, that much more difficult and complex for Democratic leadership. And staying in the Senate will be Ron Johnson. After saying he was going to retire, he will seek that third um, that third term in the Senate, um, that coming down just in the last hour. It, it did. Uh, it, it was. We, we knew a couple of days ago that uh, he was likely going to go in this direction. He made it official this morning, and he said back two years ago, or, uh, um, he said back six years ago that he was going to only serve two terms, and that was going to be it. He has changed his mind, so voters uh, can either uh, say, all right, that's cool, you, you have the right to change your mind, or they can hold uh, hold him to his original promise and not vote him back into office, but expect this to be, as he seeks a third term, one of the most high-profile and likely very expensive races. I wouldn't say it's going to be the most expensive Senate race in 2022, but it's going to be up there. And already you have outside organizations and party-connected organizations uh, ready to pour millions and millions of dollars into this race, even at this relatively early juncture. So if you live in the state of Wisconsin, man, expect to get communications of every sort through every medium that you could possibly conjure up uh, for this particular race, because it is going to be an absolute Donnie Brook Joe. Does she, or does he, I'm sorry, does he have uh, Republican support or would there be a primary with this announcement, you know, kind of going back on his word? He's, you know, he, he's going to be the nominee. Uh, he, he may get uh, token challenges, but uh, there's no indication that there's any appetite uh, among voters in Wisconsin, Republican primary voters in Wisconsin, to replace him on uh, on the ballot uh, to have a, a new primary, or to, to have a primary where a new nominee for the Republican Party would be chosen. So that has happened in history, in recent history, but it's incredibly rare and. The conditions just don't seem to be there for that taking place uh, in Wisconsin. So presuming that uh, that Ron Johnson is going to be the nominee for that seat, he definitely has the support of his party overall at the national level. And uh, that's uh, definitely going to be a very tight race, as it often is in Wisconsin, because the state, even though it uh, is, you know, been red uh, or reddish, is uh, definitely, I think you can uh, qualify as a, a pretty purple state uh, when when you look at the, the recent history of the state's uh, electoral votes. Dave, we can't go talking without talking about COVID uh, for a question. And testing seems to be uh, an issue nationwide. Here in Erie County, the county just got 80,000 tests from the state. And our Volkswagen of Orchard Park text board is filled up with people telling us where they're sold out um, and where they can no longer get it. Is testing, I I know the president purchased, uh, I believe, a half a billion tests. uh, But it seems to still be an issue uh, throughout the country. Is the White House focusing on this? Have we heard anything about addressing the testing shortage in America? Yeah, the, the White House is very focused on the issue of testing. So even though there there have been uh, just incredibly conflicting guidance and, and all different sorts of uh, standards, uh, which, which oftentimes are focused on the local level because these are local decisions about School openings and closings and individual businesses are deciding for themselves uh, how to handle the pandemic. The one thing that the federal government can do, and and, and this is key here and, and is going to be able to do in all likelihood, is use its own federal resources to get 
stuff to people. And what is that stuff? Well, that stuff is tests. So I think we can expect here in D.C. that there's going to be pretty clear guidance in the not-too-distant uh, not future about people receiving COVID tests through the U.S. mail. Uh, so effectively, the federal government mailing tests to people right at their home. They don't have to go to a pharmacy. They don't have to go to a testing center. They will be able to get at least a limited amount of tests at their home that they can use for the time being. So that would be you know, a pretty massive, dramatic change in the way this is all going because Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've talked to friends and family members and have asked them the question time and time again, hey, what, what's the testing situation like in your community? And it ranges from, oh, it's super easy. I can go to my local library and they have them for free and it takes 30 seconds and I can get a couple of books while I'm there too, to I waited in line for two and a half hours just to get a single test and there are no rapid tests around. So it's a mess. It's a patchwork quilt all across the country. There's no consistency and how this is being applied. And oftentimes it just depends on where you live in your own local jurisdiction as to how this is being handled. So the federal government's stepping in to kind of uh, create testing equity, if you will, via the Postal Service is uh, something that people have been clamoring for for months. And, and it appears that it's going to be um, going forward. And uh, Louis DeJoy, the Postmaster General, who, of course, has been very crosswise with the Biden administration. Uh, he, he was a, a Trump appointee. Uh, he has said that the Postal Service is ready to deliver them if, in fact, uh, that comes to pass. And it's interesting. You said, I, I waited two hours for a test. Our last text was, I just waited an hour for nothing. Talking about one of the locations here in Erie County that have uh, sold out. Dave, before I let you go, Big game at 425. You got a little time to think about it. Uh, you know, these these later games I'm not used to with 15 years of one o'clock games. Um, not used to these later games. How do you feel about winning the division on home turf? I, I know. It's like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to have to, you know, go for a run or take down the Christmas tree or something here. I, I suspect a lot of Buffalo Indians are, are feeling the same way. Hey, all I know is that uh, young Dave back in 1988 was sitting there and then Rich Stadium watching the Bills beat the Jets 9-6 to in overtime to win the AFC East Championship that year. That changed my life as a Bills fan, so the opportunity today to win the AFC East again at home against the Jets is warming my heart, and I hope we do it uh, not in, you know, uh, thin fashion in overtime, but uh, win the game by about 30 points and head into the playoffs on a high note. Yeah, I'm hoping it's not 9-6. to six. That score this season um, is uh, it, it, it's very trigger. <laughs> but let me tell you, 9-6, to six, not a score I want to see on a scoreboard anytime soon. Dave, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Go Bills. We'll talk soon. Go Bills indeed. Have a great day. That is Dave Leventhal, the Deputy Bureau, Washington Deputy Bureau Chief for Business Insider. When we come back, Dr. Amish Adelja joined Brian Mazarowski and myself. We'll play part of that interview here on Hardline. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 
if your day sounds like. We need the report ASAP. You deserve Medela. If you've persevered through. You deserve this rich golden lager with a crisp but refreshing taste. Or if you overcame. Two more reps, two more. You deserve this ice cold reward. Medela, the markable fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN, the final segment. Earlier this week, Brian Mazarowski and I spoke with Dr. Amish Adalja from Johns Hopkins University about the current COVID-19 strategy, booster shots, and more. Here's part of that interview from Thursday. Dr. Amish Adalja, Johns Hopkins University, is joining us on the line right now. Dr. Adalja, thanks so much for the time. Uh, we know it's a busy time for you, uh, but wanted to get you on because, uh, you know, it's a new year. And it really is, you can point to maybe a few weeks prior to the new year, but as we turn the calendar into 2022, it really is a different COVID picture that we're talking about as opposed to all the other times we've had discussions on, uh, uh, on the air here. And I want to start with, you know, just kind of what I think a lot of people are saying right now. I had someone close to me, uh, he was about to go on a trip not anymore. Uh, getting the uh, you know COVID test to go out of the country and oh positive you have COVID you know didn't even know it. Uh, we're looking at you know we're close to Toronto here. I'm looking at a story out of Canada, and the headline uh, I think is saying it all to me right now. Cough, cold, or COVID-19? Doctors say with symptoms overlapping, it's impossible to tell. And when I see something like that and you see kind of what's around you and the severity level diminished with the new COVID variant, it leads you to a lot of questions of, all right, what are we doing here and uh, when are we over? Well, I think that what you're seeing now is, is the fact that Omicron is basically ubiquitous and this is not something that people are going to be able to avoid And because the symptoms are so much overlapping with other respiratory viruses, including influenza, which are circulating again, it's very difficult to know. I think the key thing here is to get through this kind of acute phase, this acute wave of Omicron, and hope that our hospital systems are able to handle it. Because even if it is less severe on a pound-for-pound basis, if it infects more people and we still have enough high-risk unvaccinated individuals in certain communities, it could be a lot for hospitals that are already down on staffing and, and with, with capacity concerns. And I think we'll probably know this within the next couple of, of weeks, but that's sort of where we stand. You spoke of um, it overlapping with the flu, and we heard of the first case of this flu rona. Uh, do you think that's going to be something that's common throughout the United States, or is it going to be just these rare instances of flu and COVID at the same time? It's fairly rare, probably less than 10%. There's going to be less than 10% of that of the time that's going to happen. And it's, it's interesting because they're calling this the first case. But back in 2020, we had tons of cases like that. It's just that the press didn't care at that point. Uh, so now, and then they've come up with a catchy name for it now. So it's getting all these headlines. But we always knew that coronavirus and other, and other viruses could co-infect at the same time. So I'm, I'm really puzzled by the, this fluorona craze that's in the, in the news. I, the other thing that was in the news was yesterday, the FDA expanding the use of booster shots to now include people as young as 12. Um, and this was uh, following 
you know, expanded boosters and young people already here in our state to go to the University of Buffalo or, you know, many SUNY schools. Now a booster is required in about a week's time if you want to return to campus. And, you know, I'm looking at this kind of, you know, going, I'm very surprised we're still doing this because everything I'm reading, you know, from reliable sources would indicate, okay, we're dealing with something much milder. Um, You know, everything we know to be true still is where if you're younger, uh, you're less susceptible to a negative outcome. These people are already required to be vaccinated as it is. And the vaccines are holding up well uh, to hospitalization and death, uh, you know, amidst everybody. And here we are now requiring boosters for 18-year-olds to get their education and opening it up for people as young as 12, uh, I think it's maybe even less than six months after they were first approved for the initial shots. I Does this seem strange to you? Yes, it does. And I think it's it's because I think people are very mixed on what their goal should be with COVID-19. And to me, it's always about preventing serious illness, hospitalization and death. And I don't think boosting healthy people with these first generation vaccines to give them a transient benefit to prevent mild illness really makes much sense. But for whatever reason, um, after the CDC initially approved them, it's really been expanded to almost everybody and you can remember way way back in the beginning, the CDC's ACIP committee voted against general boosters for people and the CDC director overrode her, her advisory committee. So uh, to me, this has always been something that they've wanted to have some actionable thing for people to do. And they tell them to get boosted. And that's that's part of their message, even though when I work in the hospital and I just worked overnight in the hospital, it's not people who lack boosters that are there. It's people who lack first and second doses. And I think we have to to remember that that's the most important thing. And I think it's silly that many of these universities are now requiring boosters for, for their students who are not going to be at risk for severe disease. I think universities should require full vaccination, but the booster doesn't make much sense for me in that group. I think boosters make sense in people who are high risk, people who are older, uh, elderly, but outside of that, I think there's, there's marginal value to them. And uh, with Omicron, we see that people who are boosted are getting infected. And the the thing is, I think we probably need to think about what our overall strategy is, because boosting if we boosted everyone in the United States that needed boosted, our hospitals would still suck. It's an interesting way to put it. And I'm wondering if we got on this uh, line of booster and, you know, we're just kind of slow to shift our, our mind. Right. Because booster, when you're dealing with Delta, you know, might seem like a, a good idea based on the data you're seeing. But I, I'm looking at something that was released about a week ago from a scientist at the University of Toronto who they looked at, uh, let's see, it's about 3,500 Omicron cases, over 9,000 Delta cases, and about half a million uh, test-negative controls. And a third dose in providing protection. And they say it's uh, not great protection with the booster against Omicron, vaccine effectiveness with the third dose after seven days, They put it at about 37 percent. And, you know, to kind of marry all this stuff together, when we were talking about a vaccine, we were looking at, you know, well, it needs to be 50 percent effective. And now we're mandating boosters to go to college for 18 year olds that a booster on the type of covid that's now circulating is 
under that 50%. Now, you know, that's just one study, a few thousand people, but we're all kind of seeing this anecdotally, too. Yeah, I think that this was something that was ill-conceived. And now it's going to be very hard for people to walk back these booster recommendations and booster requirements. But there, there really is not strong data that healthy people are going, to, are going to benefit that much from it, especially with Omicron, where we know it's <clears throat> immune evasive. And when you're talking about populations in which a breakthrough infection is going to be exceedingly mild, it, it doesn't. It, it's just never been something that I thought made sense. But <clears throat> the political winds kind of went that way. And it became very hard. A lot of us in the field had initially opposed boosters for the general public if they weren't high-risk individuals, but we've sort of been drowned out now, and it's kind of went on, and it's now you, you actually get equated to being anti-vax if, you, if you're against the boosters. I, have, I get hate mail from pro-booster people now. Dr. Dalger, you talk about it being immune resistant, this new variant Omicron. Are we seeing now with this more cases of people getting COVID for the second time? And with that, if you do have Omicron, what does that mean for natural immunity from the next variant? We're basically with Omicron, any immunity that you have from prior vaccination, any immunity from prior infection is not something that's going to really stop Omicron. So we're going to basically have the whole population of the, of the world susceptible again, uh, based on the mutations that Omicron has. And that doesn't mean that people are all going to get serious disease. It means that if you're vaccinated, you're going to get mild disease because it doesn't erase everything that the vaccine does for you. What it, what it means for natural immunity, for uh, what we're seeing is that there is some data that if you, after an Omicron infection, you do get a big boost of antibodies that, may be protective against other variants. So, for example, um, you're much more protected, it seems, from laboratory studies against Delta after Omicron than you were before. Um, so those antibodies seem to be much more cross-reactive after Omicron. I think the, the key thing is, is to remember that there's four other coronaviruses that cause 25% of our common colds, and they reinfect us every year routinely. They get around our immunity and are able to cause mild illness. Omicron might be sort of the first step that COVID-19 takes down that path. And, and I think it was always destined that COVID would become the fifth seasonal coronavirus. And it looks like Omicron is, is you know, a sign of that, a premonition of that happening. With Omicron so quickly spreading and so quickly becoming dominant, the dominant variant, is there going to be a time where this is, as you said, everyone's susceptible to it, where Delta becomes again the dominant variant because Omicron has moved so quickly? I actually think Delta will probably go will become extinct because right now we're seeing Delta cases fall rapidly. And if Omicron immunity gives you immunity to Delta, Delta is not going to have many people to infect. If everybody gets infected with Omicron, Delta just might not be able to have enough susceptible hosts to survive. So Delta may get extinguished by Omicron. Do we have a good handle right now of, you know, hospitalizations will be under the microscope? Um, and, you know, uh, we have a lot of talk of that being, uh, instead of cases, you know, looking at that is maybe giving us a, a, a clear indicator of where we are. Do we have a good idea of what type of COVID cases are making up our COVID hospitalizations? Um, in other words, is Omicron really sending people to the hospital or is it still just Delta? Um, do we have a clear grasp on that? Increasingly, it is now Omicron. I think there are still some residual Delta patients there, and, and Delta has fallen to maybe about 5% of our cases overall now. 
but there are some Delta patients in the hospital. Omicron is sending people to the hospital. Omicron has killed people. The key thing is it's still going to be the unvaccinated, high-risk individuals. And maybe, on, as I said earlier, on, a, on an individual basis, Omicron is less likely to send you to the hospital. But if there's a lot of susceptible people in a given region who have high-risk conditions, it's still, even if the hospitalization rate is lower, it still may be too much for hospitals that are under capacity concerns because of the prior Delta wave that's dissipating somewhat and a lot because of staffing issues and the fact that, that many healthcare workers themselves are getting Omicron and having to, to be out sick. When we hear about uh, a booster and as it relates to Omicron uh, and, and, you know, vaccinated people, boosted people getting COVID, I, is there a difference between two and three doses um, when it comes to Omicron? Because, you know, as I'm kind of thinking uh, about this, this vaccine, you know, targeted toward COVID as we knew it, you know, at a certain point in time over a year ago. Now with the mutation, has it mutated to the point where it doesn't matter how much vaccine you have, uh, it's it's really kind of a, a little bit different, uh, if you get what I'm, what I'm trying to ask here? Not completely. It depends upon who you're talking about. In the healthy population, yeah, I think what you're saying holds. But if you're talking about an immunosuppressed person or someone with high-risk conditions, they definitely should be boosted because their breakthrough infection may not be mild, and there is evidence that a third dose will help them stave off hospitalization. So for people above age 65, people with any high-risk immunosuppressing uh, condition, they should be boosted immediately. Would it be then a, a more credible policy to say, given what we know right now, when it comes to a booster shot, instead of saying, all right, let's open it up to everyone over 12, and uh, to go back to college, you're going to need it, to say for the general population, if you're young, if you're vaccinated, you might not need it with this new variant. However, if you are over a certain age, maybe that's 65, maybe it's 60, maybe it's something else, or you have you know, one of these comorbidities, you may need this booster shot, say, every six months. I think that's probably a, a better policy, and that's what, what sort of had been articulated in the past. Unfortunately, that kind of got washed away because people got confused about who was eligible for a booster and who wasn't. And public health often likes simple one-size-fits-all solutions just to say everybody get a booster at six months is much easier than saying if you have diabetes, if you have this, if you have that, get a booster. And I think that also um, that, that's, that, that would have been a much more precision-guided message, and I think it would make sense, and it actually would be beneficial because it really articulates what the goals are to prevent severe illness, and maybe that changes down the line with updated boosters that may be directed against Omicron or second-generation vaccines that are more universal. But yes, I think a more targeted booster approach is, is what makes sense, but it's, it's going to take some time for people to walk this back, and I don't know if they, they will walk it back. Does the likelihood of rapid spread of the Omicron variant change what might be coming in terms of pediatric vaccination? Um, you know, in other terms, if we're going to be talking about a vaccine for kids under five years old or for a large portion of kids, say, between five and 10 who have not been vaccinated, they're likely to get infected. Should that change recommendation on vaccination in those age groups? I think it, it, it could based on the fact that if they do get if they do get protection through immunity and this starts to evolve to a more milder, more manageable infection that we don't necessarily have 
<clears throat> stringent requirements for children with these first-generation vaccines. What I think ultimately is going to happen is that we're going to see a, a really a much better second-generation vaccine that's used in routine childhood immunization, and I think that will be kind of the the, the last the last uh, the last blows with COVID-19 once it becomes something that we immunize routinely against in childhood the way we do for rotavirus or chickenpox. That that may be what we we see happening, but I do think that we should think about vaccine policy in light of what's going on with the virus's epidemiology and its virology. And if it's changing to a different, <clears throat> to something different, I think that, that that could influence vaccine policy, especially when we're using vaccines directed against the, the first generation of this virus. But I think it's, it's going to be some time before all of that vaccine policy gets sorted out. Dr. Dalsha, uh, the CDC went from 10 to 5 days talking about quarantine. They got a lot of uh, backlash on Twitter, uh, a lot of people in the, in the media even saying that they went too far. What do you think about the quarantine for those who have been infected with COVID uh, being only 5 days uh, compared to 10? We've always known that the one-size-fits-all isolation period didn't make sense, that, that the bulk of transmission was occurring in the first half of illness. I think what the CDC was trying to do was correct to trying to right-size the isolation period, trying to minimize the disruption to, to people's lives with isolation, to encourage people to get tested because many people weren't getting tested if they faced a 10-day isolation period, and they had the science to support it. However, I think that the public health communication was very muddled and they got very defensive. They didn't include tests, and many people thought that that was because they, there was a shortage of, that, that there is a shortage of home tests. Then they basically cast doubt on the value of those tests, and then they went back and then put the test back in, but kind of put it in a wishy-washy manner, saying, if you have a test and you want to test, get one on, on day five, and then isolate for five more days if you are positive, which actually disincentivizes people to test. So I think they handled this terribly, uh, but I think in general what we want to do is make isolation periods the perfect size. We want them to be precision-guided, and I think using rapid tests to say your isolation period is four days, yours is seven days. That makes sense. Um, hopefully, we get to that point. But this is going to this is creating more confusion and more backlash against the CDC. And many people have now tuned out the, the CDC, which is unfortunate because they are they are the best at what they do, but they're just so compromised in how they do it because of political being infused with politics and also. Uh, just poor public health communication that to me is inexplicable. And again, that was Dr. Amish Adalja from BMAS and Beamer earlier this week. If you'd like to hear that interview in its entirety, you can find it at WBEN.com and on the Odyssey app. That is all for Hardline today. Go Bills. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning starting at 5 a.m. here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. For a tax-
protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 